Anything's possible, though, because, you know, Bitcoin is money, so, you know, money talk, man. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, powered by Cointelegraph. What began as a small experiment is now a rapidly expanding ecosystem. As citizens of the internet, we expect to be able to send money over the internet as quickly and cheaply as sending an email. As citizens of the internet, we demand transparency. Here, we talk about Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain industries, fintech, and more. But we're not experts. We're just three guys in the Bitcoin community. And adoption is the only thing that matters. to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode number 79. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, Day up in the Spiatch. And host number three, Corey. Uh, we are brought to you by the good folks at escrowmybits.com. Let me tell you a little bit about this really cool sponsor. All you're going to do is register, and then you're going to deposit your Bitcoin. Seller strips the item, buyer checks the goods. Then they release the funds. It's that easy. It's that easy, guys. They're going to charge a small flat escrow fee of 1% on all escrow transactions. And they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party. So they've thought of everything. And Escrow My Bits was great to solve all the problems around the type of escrow services currently around. And their goal is to make using escrow as simple as possible. So if you can't figure it out, you are not smart. And we want there to be no longer any excuses on why not to use escrow. So start that process. Go to that website and make sure you sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date. And escrow your shit with escrowmybits.com. Yeah. And we're also brought to you by Athena Bitcoin, which is the most trusted name in Bitcoin ATMs. And they're located in Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston and we live in Texas, me and D. So this is it's pretty exciting for us. And uh, I think they're in seven other cities. Uh, but download the Athena Bitcoin wallet on the App Store or Google Play uh, for specific locations and more information. Uh, and then you can visit AthenaBitcoin.com. They're always adding new locations. Uh, and we're also brought to you by Athena Bitcoin's portfolio company, Bitquick.co which is the secure, quick, and easy peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace. Get Bitcoin for cash in as little as three hours. That's a Mike Tyson knockout. Bitquick serving uh, Bitcoiners since 2013, so they know what they're doing. So where there's a bank, there's Bitquick. Booyaka. Wait. How long have you been saying the Mike Tyson knockout thing? This is the first time. I I wanted to say (laughs) that three hours is not as quick as a Mike Tyson knockout but if you wouldn't have brought attention to it maybe people thought it was. <laughs> i don't know it's Sorry. still pretty quick it's still pretty quick. i brought attention to it because it caught my attention it's gonna catch other people's attention <laughs> um we're gonna do something a little different in this episode um we're gonna start off an interview with uh vinay gupta who's whose work is not easy to summarize but i'm gonna give it my best here he's uh he's an inventor and a futurist and I guess what Corey would call a systems theorist uh, and a global resilience guru whose who's life, life's work focuses on how to ensure the long-term survival and flourishing of the human race. 
And it was a stimulated conversation about a wide variety of topics, including uh, Ethereum, politics, and basic human needs. And in addition, he just announced that he's starting a venture capital project focusing on the complex technologies and taking better care of founders. Um, so me and Corey, we rocked this one, and it was pretty good. pretty good interview. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was very good. It was brain stimulating from the jump. I, I don't know. It, it had it had all things that you want in a interview. It had intrigue, it had depth, it had humor, it had it all. It's got it all. And he's got that crazy cool accent. That always helps. Yeah. yeah. And then we're gonna do something even a little. I don't know if I should say this now, but I want you guys to stick around after this really cool interview because. Um, the majority of coders in California and into the crypto scene, they're they're coming. They're not coming from impoverished areas where like not much hope is to be had, but a special few have risen and used their God-given talents to excel in the space. One of those people is Stephen Mackey, who he first appeared on episode fifty, I think, and since he's become a regular on the show, and he comes on the show and he recalls what it's like to grow up in a rough environment, having to protect his mom growing up. And it's really just a great story of just kind of like believing in yourself. So it's a little character profile on Mackie, who now works for Purse and yours, and he's quickly becoming like the loudest voice in the crypto room. Yeah, definitely. This was a very eye-opening interview. It, uh, I liked it because it showed, you know, the diversity of people that are in this community, the Bitcoin community. So, well, not this interview. Well, yeah, this interview, but both both interviews. Well, the second one's not really an interview. You'll get it when you listen to it. Anyways, yeah. Here it is. Why'd you guys let me keep talking? I was really fucking that up. (laughs) (laughs) You can build your own grave, man. Here it is. Cool. There's one one thing I wanted to uh, start off by saying. Um, I wanted to personally thank you. I've been following your career for a while, and I, I know you changed courses a few years ago when you started focusing on balancing your needs to, to change your life with your need to change the world. And so you, you kind of Ram reading capitalism <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, we, we started this podcast. It was our own personal way to achieve that for us. And I think oh, right. Corey and I can agree that we, we feel more enthused and better balanced than we did a year ago. And it, it just, it really helps us. Cool. It's a good approach. Cool. I'm I'm really glad to hear that because you know it's kind of, you know I have a lot of kind of hippie friends of various kinds and you know solving the work life money balance problem thing is really 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 hard for people that have some kind of fundamental ethical values. It's it's took me about ten years to 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 start understanding the balance myself. I spent really the majority of my career uh, maintaining just just trying to maintain the 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 life balance and not working too hard. I just finished my PhD and I still haven't really entered the workforce, I guess you could call it. And I'm just kind of enjoying that. It's it's hard to fathom maintaining, focusing, I guess, quality of life and quality of life of others while then also kind of getting a paycheck and putting food on the table. The thing that really blows my mind is to be able to pull this stuff off with kids. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea how people with kids manage. My God, <laughs> yeah, level of function that it must require to actually cope. You know, 
I've got several folks that I know who've got like you know three kids under the age of five or seven, and it's just like you know, wow, welcome to the monkey house. <laughs> yeah, it's a monkey house over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure cellos, cellos yeah, kids. It's just are... like you're, you're dealing with like full-on primate evolution right in front of you. It's like, hi, I'm a chimpanzee who will eventually learn how to operate a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to teach it. Yeah, I don't know how parents do it. Yeah, seriously, seriously, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, speaking of, I guess, All right, teaching, we can go ahead and just get started and jump right into it. Uh, and that right, transitions us somewhat nicely into one of our one of our first questions or something we want to talk about. And I guess uh, if we were to ask you, how do we ensure long-term survival and like the flourishment of the human race and this is what we're doing when we're raising kids how do we how would the future of money be involved into that equation how do we insert a cryptocurrency somewhere in that argument okay so the first thing is if we're going to have any kind of fundamental solution to human survival uh, we have to segregate the human race into different areas depending on the level of technological risk that they're running so, you know, if you've got a bunch of people that are basically, you know, agrarian organic farmers who are using, you know, old techniques, they propose essentially zero risk to the biosphere. There is no possibility that anything these people do in destruction of anything beyond maybe setting a bit of forest on fire by accident. On the other end, if you're working with replicator technologies, you know, nanotech, biotech, if you're working with nuclear, some would say if you're working with AI, there's a possibility that you're going to let something loose which will replicate or otherwise cause changes to the entire ecosystem. So you've got to think of this in terms of like zones in the same way that we have, say, different security clearances, where the stuff which is safe you could do on Earth, biosphere zero, and the stuff which is super dangerous you have to take far, far, far away. You know, do it on the dark side of the moon, you know, wherever it is you're going to do it, just don't do it here. And that's an entirely credible way of doing this kind of stuff. But to make that kind of stuff work, right, you've got to be in a position where you've got some sort of ability to, you know, authoritatively decide what is dangerous and then somehow figure out how to get people into a position where they're not going to do that stuff here. Right? Now, yeah. that's plausible and impractical. But if you've got a technology, you know, if you've got a world in which people can deploy replicator technology super easily, the idea that you can't also use that technology to build the bases you need on the dark side of the moon to actually do the rest of the engineering doesn't make any sense. So the same tools that would give us the ability to do this kind of split are also the same tools that we could use to, uh, that, you know, that we need protection from. Okay, so section one, that's your long-term goal. Get all the dangerous technology off Earth. Get all the people that want to work with the dangerous technology off Earth. Section two, okay, between now and then, what we need to start building is comprehensive tracking and monitoring systems so we know where the dangerous technology is. So you start taking all the things which emit enormous amounts of carbon, generate enormous amounts of carbon, you flag all of that stuff on a blockchain, right? Individual carbon dioxide measurement, like how much CO2 are you responsible for emitting into the environment? Well, every time you pay for something, you also receive a receipt which credits you with the amount of CO2 that was used by the something. So, you know, you buy a car, you get immediately three and a half tons of CO2 for every tire that is involved in the car. Every time you buy the gasoline to run the car, you get to open, there's a bunch more CO2 on it. 
And, you know, you can begin to track the use of the Earth's natural resources on these kind of technologies in a way that gives you the ability to then do things like impose taxation relative to the amount of CO2 that somebody's emitted. You can do things like transferable energy quotas, where every human being gets a budget of, you know, whatever is a thousand kilograms of carbon emissions a year. And if they go beyond that budget, yeah, the next year their budget is less. So the people that aren't using much carbon can sell their carbon quotas to other people, and you can begin to build a global economy, which actually operates inside of environmental limits. There is no way that we're going to build systems that work like that on top of paper currency. This is what you really need blockchains for. So you need this this tokenization and trackability and somewhat, I guess, um, proof of history written into how we yeah. use currency and exchange in order for anything like this to ever come into being. Blockchains are the perfect tool for doing environmental uh, engineering and environmental sustainability. They're the perfect tool. You couldn't wish for a better tool. Oh, well, how can how can cryptocurrency achieve like a homogenous monetary mass that could overcome the impracticalities of, of currency fragmentation and thus affect sovereign authority? Well, I mean, you know, in the cryptocurrency game, you know, one of the one of the games that we play is what year is it in cryptocurrency? Right. If cryptocurrency was so following the same general de development as the internet followed, what year is it in cryptocurrency? What? You know, some 1995, you know, we've just gotten the web, it's beginning to scale, you're beginning to see more people using it, they're all super interested. You know, other people will say, you know, it's more like 99, some people will say it's like oh, 91, it's like go for an FUP. And my gut feeling is that it's actually more like the mid 1970s. You know, the stuff we're looking at right now that we call cryptocurrencies is like this very, very, very super early stage, you know, solder it yourself circuit board four bit computer that you can use to turn off and on a couple of relays. You know? Yeah, definitely. Like seven transactions. You know, seven transactions a second for Bitcoin is that's slow for a punched card machine. To get that kind of speed for addition and subtraction from a thing that somebody called a computer, you have to go back to hand-cranked mechanical calculators. You have right. to take into account, I guess, I guess the things we're talking about in terms of the future we see, where the currency is just an aspect of the entire system. And if we can't have a scalable currency, then we can't scale any of this stuff. So we're really, 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 really early in terms of the technology and of where we want to be. Exactly, right. Because at the end of the day, you know, the fact is that Bitcoin is as fast as a mechanical calculator. Ethereum is not substantially faster, right? It's a factor of two or three, and you need a factor of 50,000. So in that sort of context, you've got to say, okay, these are proto-proto-proto-technologies. We still think it's something to do with currency. By the time somebody gets a blockchain that actually scales and slaps a trading AI on top of the scaled blockchain, people are probably not going to identify these technologies as being meaningfully about currency in any way, shape, or form. Currency is like a super low-level API into the real world, but what you might say is that this is a distributed computing environment for hosting artificial intelligence applications. Or you might say that this is the you know electronic framework which is wrapped around all physical objects to ensure that we know where they came from and where they're going. But the idea that we're going to think about this stuff as being predominantly about currency in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't think anybody's going to give a monkeys about currency. It starts with currency in the same way that you know we started building computers to process data for doing accounting. 
So calling the internet like an overgrown accounting package is what it's like to call these kind of end state technologies currencies. Then do you see cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology type stuff as a utilization to make human socialization more efficient? Or do you see it as us creating something else entirely as terms of like, you know, the, the, the birth of AI or things that we, you know, that work outside of human interaction and social, like how we deal socially? So the blockchain could have been kicked off really at any point since maybe in the 80s. All the essential algorithms were there. You know, I think, you know, you could have done it any point since RSA. It wasn't practical because a whole bunch of stuff had to be invented that was facilitatory. So, for example, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, the distributed hash table algorithm, uh, Is that right? Uh, I couldn't tell you. Properly? That yeah, sounds like so a said right thing that basically powers the distributed hash table inside of Bitcoin and BitTorrent and a whole bunch of other stuff. They all basically use the same algorithm. And until that was invented, there was no really practical way of doing anything that was properly distributed. We just didn't have the algorithms. Um, but nonetheless, you could have done something that was kind of sort of like a blockchain without the DHT in the early 1990s. What we didn't have was, you know, we, we just didn't have the mindset, right? It, it took a long time to build the understanding this is where we were going. Um, now, I want to try and distinguish two things here that are quite similar. Just trying to find the right way to phrase this. So, right now we've got a whole bunch of very, very, very heavy convergent trends. I mean, just jaw-droppingly heavy stuff is happening very, very, very quickly. All of that stuff is connected to all the other stuff. So if we'd invented the blockchain and some kind of effective global payments network in 1991, People probably would have joined it to the web and said it was micropayments. You do the same thing again in the early stages of the AI revolution, you're going to weld it directly to the AI and you're going to call it mumble, 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 something like mechanized management of funds. We're always going to take the technologies which are emerging at about the same time and join them to each other because it's easy to do. This is similar to the way that physicists have worldviews based on the physics of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And, you know, all the people that are at the technological frontier kind of want to join their stuff to all the other stuff, which is the technological frontier. Yeah. Nobody wants to work with legacy systems because they're ugly and boring and they're attached to huge organizations with awful bureaucracies and it sucks. So, you know, all the people that are currently making a living basically welding the blockchain to the legacy banking infrastructure, these people are really working hard for a living. You know, that is difficult, backbreaking mm -hmm. work. It pays really, really well. But it pays really, really well because it's really, really hard. The people at the other end of the spectrum who are building stuff that's like, let's build blockchains that connect directly with virtual reality, have like seven users because almost nobody is fully fluent in both technologies. But everybody that you're working with is super, super, super edgy, hip, intelligent, fantastic. Right? So you've got to think about this in terms of sort of cultures of technology. All the technologies which are going critical at a given time, people tend to join them up because that's a fun job to do. All the older legacy technologies are nasty and different, and that's why we consider them to be legacy. And nobody really wants to do the work of taking the new stuff and connecting it to the old stuff. And this is what results in the weird social dynamics that you see. Um, 
you know, everybody wants to talk blockchains and AI. Nobody really, really wants to talk blockchains and you know, like double entry book. Cobalt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Blockchains and cobalt is not a conversation that anybody really wants to have right now. Thank you very much. But the people who are doing it, including a lot of people from Consensus, you know, they are working very hard to make a living doing something which absolutely needs done if blockchains are going to go mainstream. Huh. Well, what, that's really interesting. But what about from like a semantic level? Because people struggle to get the real world into databases using knowledge management. And you stated uh, in a recent article that that things were hard to represent in databases. Uh, they became yeah. alternately devalued. Could yeah. you give some specific specific examples? Because me and Corey were talking about this, and we couldn't think of any. Okay. So the kind of uh... The book, to get the real sense of how this works, is called Seeing Like a State. And Seeing Like a State basically says, look, if you couldn't fit it into the rational apparatus that the state uses to model reality, it would result in, you know, the thing would be completely devalued. So one example would be social skills in education. You know, everybody knows that kids that are homeschooled have a much harder time dealing with, say, university than kids that were schooled in a regular schooling system. You know, if you if you were socialized in the same way that everybody else was socialized, when you get out into the big bad world, you're carrying basically the same software, you understand the protocols, you can more or less function. Right. But we don't have any actual representation of acquisition of social schools inside of the university uh, inside of the um, high school curriculum because it turns out to be super hard to measure. True. It's really easy to measure math skills. It's real, real, real hard to measure social skills. Mm -hmm. So we know that socialization is part of the reason that high school is important. But we've no way of measuring socialization, so we can't quantify it, so we can't improve it, and you can't get funding to make a better job of doing socialization. And this is the classic wow. example of something which is illegible, because you can't make it visible, objective, repeatable. You wind up devaluing it, even though you know that it's a critical part of the process. You cannot represent it objectively yet, and as a result, it's persistently devalued. Never thought of it like that. Seeing like the states are really important set of concepts. So, is the goal to find ways to quantify the world around us, therefore allowing us to objectively look at it and see how to how to improve it, or is it to find new ways of looking at the world and not trying like qualitatively or quantitatively? assign values to it. So the issue problem is what the semantic web guys went after after head on. Um, my friend Christopher Brewster is the uh, head of basically blockchain research, I think that would be his job title, uh, for an outfit called TNO, which is an enormous Dutch research organization. It's kind of like the Dutch DARPA, but the Dutch, Dutch don't use it for military research. They just use it for trying to get the same kind of econ economic benefits that other countries get from military research. I think that's a rough sum. So, you know, Christopher is basically figuring out how to take all the semantic web concepts about representing reality using essentially XML RDF and how to get those kind of representations onto blockchains in a way that actually allows you to do things with blockchains. I think that is super important work um, because in the long run, you know, if you've got two smart contracts that want to exchange information about the status of something, they need to agree on some standards about how the status is going to be represented. And if you make mistakes, you're going to wind up with the same kind of cock-ups that resulted in a space uh, in a satellite crashing 
Because one team had used... Well, actually, it was not Mars. It was Mars. It was Mars. Because one team had used inches and the other team had used centimeters. And nobody wanted to speak up and say that they did that. Oh, my God. You can't even believe that you could wind up with that kind of cluster effect. Yeah. You know? Like, you, you can't believe that you could wind up with an actual piece of space hardware with those kind of engineering tolerances crashing into a planet because somebody used inches. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh my god, this is beyond retarded. Yeah, so I don't even know why someone would use inches anyway. <laughs> I'm an American. It's just one of those things that happens, right? You know, somebody calculates the entire thing in miles per hour and the logical thing that you said, you can do it in inches. What do you do? <laughs> so, inside that set of constraints, right? Yeah. Um, we can do a lot of representational work where we take things like you know, is this shop open and you represent it as a semantic packet? And it's got 12, 15, 20 fields and it's got a bunch of options and everybody knows how to write and read it. And then you finally wind up with a thing which you can ask and say, okay, show me the closest open pharmacy and it will actually be right every time. Because right now that's completely hit or miss, right? You know, all the opening hours information on the internet is completely decadent. It doesn't work at all. You take your best guess, and actually what happens is you find the store, you call them, and if they don't pick up, you know they're closed. And that's really, you know, and that's happening because we just don't have any efficient way of showing, you know, objective representations of openness or closeness in a form that other machines can read. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So we've got to solve that semantic problem, which is not the same as the legibility problem. Right, we're taking some legible. Is the store open? There's no legibility crisis in that. So you're taking that thing. That's a soluble problem. The second problem is way harder, which is how do we kind of enumerate the intangibles? Right? How do we talk about human values that are outside the domain of what's objectively measurable? On that one, we're screwed. It's not going to happen. It's probably never going to happen. And we've got to basically accept that we cannot run our society on spreadsheets and expect to get a society we like. Well then, that's true. So how do we how do we as you know as people who are pushing cryptocurrency, we feel like this is going to be the future of how I guess humans interact with each other. It allows us to do things much more efficiently, and I guess in the age of the internet. So what are what are possible Ethereum or cryptocurrency in general mega projects that would be worth jumping on, and and in today's society in the wake of something like the DAO because. Projects like these have to be large, and we've known that the largest projects, at least the ones that blow up in our faces, uh, can really hurt us for a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the DAO is about the worst thing to ever happen in the cryptocurrency space, right? I'd it's, say so. It's a disaster on the scale of the e-gold getting shut down by the U.S. government. <laughs> right? On that scale. Uh, and, you know, this happens because, frankly, and this is on the record, we knew that Stefan Tual was a bad actor, right? We'd worked with him. We understood where he was coming from. It was not really the same place that everyone else was coming from. And a lot of people had a really hard time with Stefan because his values were completely different from the rest of the communities, right? And so when he popped up again with this crazy scheme, what we should have done is stood up and said, Jesus Christ, no way. That guy, not happening. 
And instead, out of some spirit of general niceness and politeness and conflict aversion and all the rest of that stuff, which are basically Vitalik's values, we, generally speaking, gave Stefan a second try and gave him a pass in a situation where really we should have told everybody that he needed to be thrown from the rooftop before anybody sent a pen. Right? So you had some apprehension from, from the get-go. All of us had apprehension from the get-go. We knew Stefan, right? I, I, I didn't know that there was that uh, he kind of had a, a backstory behind that. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, look, really seriously, we all knew. The gossip in the corridors was, oh, my God, this can't be okay. But because we were a conflict-averse community, we didn't want to cause a fuss. We didn't want to give the guy, you know, we wanted to give the guy a second chance mm. because of all of those factors, but mainly because of the conflict aversion which radiates from Vitalik. Vitalik hates conflict. We all know Vitalik hates conflict. We kind of didn't stir the pot and we didn't speak up and we didn't stand up and say this is not okay. This guy's not a player. Mm-hmm. Right? We knew that there was the personnel involved. And because of the culture that we have, we did not act in time and the result is a billion dollars of losses unbelievable legal political complexity that's hemorrhaging out on all sides of the project and if we successfully surf every single thing with one of these waves it's like five years of progress in six months and if we miss a single one of those waves we are going to sink right so the mm-hmm. volatility of the risk in this entire endeavor have gone up by maybe an order or two orders of magnitude because we were so conflict averse and so forgiving that we did not put a stop to this show as soon as it started. And right. all yeah. of the old hands who knew the situation with Stefan are in that position. Same logic applies to Charles Hoskinson. You know, there are all kinds of legends about that guy. Jesus Christ, right? Serious, serious troublemaker. Lots of people know the stories. Nobody has publicly blacklisted, and as a result, we risk the same kind of thing happening over in his show. So like you right. said, uh, genius is cheap in a world with 7 billion people. Yeah, no, seriously, right? But the thing that we're lacking here is the accountability mechanisms to make sure that bad actors are flagged, right? The city of London is, you know, has been one of the world's major financial centers for, ooh, let's say, a thousand years, right? And they have an exquisitely powerful system for flagging bad actors, right? They're really good. Their social protocols for flagging bad actors are incredibly sophisticated, which is why they were able to manage a self-regulating system that handled huge amounts of the world's money for centuries, and the system basically worked. And because we lack the social protocols that go with the responsibilities that we're taking, we wind up with problems. Now, if you ask somebody else, their bad actor list might include different people. Right? My bad actor list is relatively short, I've named the people that I suspect of being bad actors based on stories that I've heard or personal experience. Right. Other people will have their own lists. But unless we're willing to stand up and talk about the people that we don't trust, we're going to be in a situation where we're not going to know who we can trust and the entire field will still grind to a halt. Because what we now know for sure is that there are people playing this game we can't trust. Mm-hmm. So would you say that right. the, the, main, the main issue with, I guess what made the DAO such a large debacle is that there's not enough assholes in the Ethereum community to call out their, their blacklist. Precisely. Huh. Wow. Right? Then, because everybody talks about consensus and everybody talks about the Great Project, we're in a position where the Great Project doesn't go forward unless we develop an immune system. Right? 
we you know because we thought naively that having secure software, secure financial system, we've gotten absolutely destroyed. So and this is naivety about human nature and about what software can and can't do. So people, you know, this is not so really much a obvious. social issue. I mean, this is not so much a, a a coding issue or a technological issue. This is these are these are because of social mores. And like, what what do you expect yeah. is the future of it? Like, you had this, this a, is entirely a sociological problem. Wow. So we came into this thing right with this expectation that we were going to be able to build these fabulous trust, trustless systems that would work regardless of what happened, right? They were meant to be completely clean and completely objective. Would you say that what has happened in the last month or so looks completely clean and completely objective? Well, from a coding standpoint, or the code does it look like worked a bunch of as... 14-year-old boys on a boat where somebody set the fire? Everything that's happened in the past month has only been due to right. the humans reacting to the technology and not, so, not the latter. Yeah. The hard fork, the Dow, I mean, etc. Yeah. Right. So you know what we have is this massive, massive, massive mound of trouble. You know, we've got literally a political response to the problem that looks like a bunch of fourteen-year-old kids on a boat that's on fire. We do not have the kind of gravitas and centered response that would indicate to me that we are genuinely on top of these issues. Well, aside from a like a community aspect, how is Ethereum fundamentally different from current web systems? Oh, I mean, what's that's a big question. Let's get to that in a minute. Right? <laughs> okay. But the mythology that we had was that because the software was perfect, we could basically not care about the attributes of the humans involved. Right? That myth is dead. Yeah, that's then All killed the doubt. Trustless decentralized, right? And it, it's been dead for a while, right? As soon as we discovered that 95% of the Bitcoin mining capacity was in China, in an authoritarian state that keeps very tight tabs on the internet, we knew that Bitcoin was no longer in any way, shape, or form meaningfully separate from the operations of the Chinese government. Yeah, we talked about that Bitcoin with... Bitcoin um, was captured by the Chinese. Yeah. Right? So we knew that the real world was encroaching into our utopias. Then we get this problem of, turns out if you're going to run what amount of financial services for hundreds of millions of dollars, if you have people that are idiots or dishonest at the helm of those projects, it doesn't matter how good the software is, they will find a way of screwing up in a way that destroys huge amounts of customer value. But that, right. that, that shouldn't keep us from providing tools that are uh, useful no, 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 to no. Is, people who aren't going we, to screw things up. Uh, yeah, okay. Who is perfect? Who is not ever going to screw something up? Well, there's nobody, right. but you have at least people who, I wouldn't say altruistic, but they have, you have people in the world that are trying to do good things for the rest of the world. Uh, and yes. So you have to provide tools they, for them. They have to be completely competent and incapable of error if we're going to have systems that run under pure mechanical control. Okay, I'll give you that. Either the software, right, either the software is perfect and it never makes a mistake, or the software is imperfect and then we have some kind of failover to another system that patches it. And instead of having a failover to good, clean governance, we got a failover to an absolute clown show. 
right? Did anybody really have a handle on what would happen with Ethereum Classic? No. Right? How is somebody new to folks? Right. So the best minds of our generation, right, have been basically on the back foot playing catch-up, getting blindsided by events, because as soon as the DAO went bang, we moved outside of the space where we'd done the analysis and we understood the game into a space where nobody knew what the hell they were doing and really making up as it goes along, and it really shows. Right? right now, we do not look like competent professionals. We look like a bunch of people that are incapable of managing the crisis that they're stuck in the middle of. And there's a reason for that. We're incapable of managing the crisis we're stuck in the middle of. This is not a victorious situation. This is a situation where if we survive, it will be as much a matter of luck as skill. I mean, it's really, really, really bad. So in um, your opinion, how do we because, move forward? Go ahead. Well... You know, let's let's admit how we got into this mess in the first place. We can't go forward until we learn from the learn the lessons, right? The lesson here is: firstly, the dream of the completely automated system without flaws has fallen prey to the simple fact that software always has bugs. Once we accept that software always has bugs, you then begin to need to design messy human governance systems that can figure out what to do when the software has bugs. Or you need to admit that when software has bugs and shit goes wrong, everybody just has to live with it, right? So those two philosophies were cooperating and collaborating to produce a single healthy effective platform. Now that the heat is on, those two philosophies have torn apart into two separate camps, each one of which thinks the other is unethical. So we now have a massive political split right in the heart of the community about how to resolve a problem caused by a software problem. Only the problem isn't actually caused by a software problem. The problem is that conflict-averse society made of nerds is incapable of defending itself from bad actors. Right? To get out of this mess, we need to build an effective dispute resolution system which is capable of taking money and moving it inside of your blockchain. And at that point, you might as well call it a state. Hmm. We have demonstrated what government is for, Government is for fixing problems like the DAO. It's ironic. It's a disaster. Well, I mean, look, we're learning very quickly why the system looks the way the system does. The system looks the way the system does because bad actors crap on everything around them, and by the time you've cleaned that mess up, you've built a whole new set of machinery for just parastate. Mm-hmm. And, and then they can instill trust in it, using it as, like, Leviathan's instrument. And here we go again, because you wind up with questions about who has the legitimate right to make those decisions, and then are we going to elect these people, or is it just going to be we're going to have Vitalik appoint them, and if so, who gets to vote? And you're right back in the middle of the entire political clusterfuck, which is what blockchains were supposed to get us away from. Ah, Vicious circle. (laughs) Vicious circle. So you could say that we've rediscovered why the world is the way it is the hard way, right? Right. This, you've got to understand that this extends very directly from the kind of you know Star Trek ideological utopianism that's always been at the heart of the blockchain vision. You know, Vitalik had a dream for how the world could operate in certain critical areas. That dream turns out to map very poorly to reality, and these things have directly smashed into each other at about half a light speed in the entire DAO saga. It's hmm. a mess. Right now, what do we do from here 
if we continue to surf the waves and if we continue to dodge the bullets and we get by on luck and quick thinking through the next four or five sets of unintended consequences that this clusterfuck has unleashed, mm. at the end of that, we will have done five years of development in six months. Right? But it requires us to get through every single ring of fire and not get nuked. It's going to be really intense because the unintended consequences have not stopped. Right? Have you guys seen that uh, you know alleged lawsuit that somebody is about to allegedly file to recover a whole bunch of losses from their DAO? Yeah. I didn't read about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's you know there's a you know prospectus for a lawsuit kicking around with a bunch of people that are seriously talking some would say not seriously talking, about recovering their losses uh, from the DAO theft. And it's it's quite a complicated legal argument they're making, but you know, at the end of the day it, it's you know, there are a whole bunch of legal liability issues that have arisen from this. And you know, we will be lucky if we don't have to go through litigation and defend ourselves through maybe because it's actually not in anybody's interest to do. But if we do wind up having to do that kind of stuff, my God, that puts the foundation in a different position, doesn't it? Yeah, that definitely puts us into another clusterfuck of um, how these types of systems interact with the the real world around us, and it's it's a deep it's a deep issue that we're not. I don't think we're ready to handle full on amidst all the issues we currently have right now. Without us having a cup, right? If we had built momentum gradually over four or five years, we could have built the maturity to manage these problems head on when the time came. Because all of that stuff has hemorrhaged into the environment now. It is not at all apparent that we have the necessary competence to get through all of this by skill, which leaves us needing a fair amount of luck. And we've been very lucky so far. There is no reason to believe that our luck won't hold, but you've got to understand how risky this whole show is. Hmm. Right? Well, I guess without getting too far into that, I think we're going to have to wrap it up and with one final question, which I think will be uh, an interesting answer from you. Um, we asked this of all of our guests and the, the, the questions range probably the most out of every other question we've ever asked is, can, in 10 words or less, can you describe Ethereum? Oh, you know the answer to that, right? 1970s, <laughs> yeah. right? 1970s, we built databases, one database for organization. 1980s, we built networks, one computer per person. Late 90s, early 2000s, we did the cloud, which helps you tie together many computers per person. Uh, and then we finally figure out how to unify the network and the database for an age of computers which are ambient and everywhere, and this is called the blockchain. So Bitcoin how do you... Comes along in a system, so how do you abstract that into beautiful 10 words? Well, there's no way of summarizing what the thing is. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. No, because, well, because the thing isn't finished yet, right? You know, if you ask people in the you know 1970s what a computer is, they're going to tell you how a computer works, right? Yeah. The people that build these things are not the people that get to decide what the story is about. Every time they try, they sound ridiculous. What the thing is will be decided by the wider culture. Right? It's the job of society to figure out how society thinks about things. We can't really tell society how the thing works. You know, in 10 years, my guess is that it will be widely understood that computation happens on the wire and that the vast majority of machines form a single seamless computing surface. 
and that may well be called Ethereum and it might be called something else entirely. The notion that you have basically an operating system that all of the electronic devices in the world all run, that's kind of the direction that we're heading in. Well, as always... How do you govern that resource are right in the middle of the mess once again. So, but my closing thought on this is this, right? We are now in a position where we cannot avoid the governance problem. Right. Some people will attempt to respond to this problem by building theorem prover based smart contract systems that in theory are incapable of effort of error. It won't work. Other people will try and build financial systems that look like insurance. Other people will build things like courts and governance inside of the Ethereum ecosystem. My money is on the third class of options. Internal dispute resolution with mechanisms that look like courts using binding arbitration on exactly the framework that Ian Grigg has talked about for 10 or 15 years uh, in the context of the Ricardian contract is the way to go. And if um, you know Stefan's outfit had implemented proper professional Ricardian contracts, when they ran into a problem with the DAO, it could have gone to binding arbitration. The value could have been managed that way rather than requiring a technical solution and everything would have been basically fine. It was the failure to implement a proper Ricardian contract that is the key failing in the entire enterprise, and that is a problem in the legal world, not the technical one. As always, also, it's a human error. It's all done by humans. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you abstract it, it's all done by humans. Vinay, I gotta say, I will be personally disappointed if you don't come on the show at least once every six months. I think you're <laughs> simply fascinating, and you're welcome back anytime. Give me a shout anytime you feel like it, guys. And, uh, you know, hang in there. It's going to be six very stormy, very difficult months. It's, it's, we're definitely going to have plenty to talk about for the next six months. And, sure. and once again, uh, thanks again for, for allowing us to take a step back, look at it philosophically, and kind of paint or try and form the archetypes of what's going on and how we perceive these things instead of always looking at what's going on through a magnifying glass. I hope that was useful, guys. Take care. That was the interview with one Vinay Gupta, uh, who is gifted to humanity from a different realm. Asgard, maybe, but uh, most likely even cooler than that. Um, hopefully you gathered that from all the cool shit that was just oozing out of his mouth. Except for the part about getting taxed on my CO2 emissions. Yeah, because fuck that. Stop emitting but, CO2, bro. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I'll just... Get right on that. I guess yeah. I'll just get straight Do to that. that. Figure it out. Blockchain. <laughs> I'm going to have CO2 emissions not come out of anything that I do. Anyways, um, yeah, it was a great interview. And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future now because I feel like it's going to be amazing. And maybe having sex with a robot is a part of it. I know that probably doesn't have much to do with the interview was about but i'm okay with it so is that what you took away from that interview uh more <laughs> or less more or less all right <laughs> what did no. you take away from that interview marcello not that <laughs> i thought it was interesting when he was talking about um i guess like autistic founders being afraid of confrontation and that in turn messes up the scene because people are afraid to call each other on their bullshit.
I thought that was pretty interesting. That was interesting. I, I, there's the idea that there's not enough assholes in the community that need to call each other out when shit happens. Yeah. Have we ever thought, you're like, you know what? We, we kind of need some more assholes in, in our community. We don't have enough of them. It's like one of those situations where you, we just kind of might need some. It's, well, you kind of have people. You don't have to be an them. asshole. You can just be oh, realistic. That's the general idea of of the type of the type of confrontation that we need or could possibly need, if people are really bad at what they do or they do very nefarious things, and it's known amongst uh, a, a group of people, if they don't talk about it or call them out on it which would be considered assholish by some people, especially the ones being called out, then, then everyone else doesn't get to learn those lessons. They have to learn them themselves. And so you kind of allow that person to continue being a shitty person Yeah. for an extended period of time. That doesn't need to happen. Well, at uh, what point do you punch that person in the face? Technology, electronically, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I haven't met anybody. I'm on the internet all the time because I live in Brazil. Ah. Uh, okay. I mean, I took a little bit more away. I did like the part where he was talking about uh, people that are welding blockchain to legacy banking systems, and they're working really hard. And you know, I, I get upset sometimes a little bit that people just don't say Bitcoin anymore. It's like Bitcoin is something you don't say. Everybody's like blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. Uh, it's annoying. Well, until Bitcoin but, has the usability and the like, it, until it implements the things like rootstock into its protocol and Lightning Network starts to scale and the things build on top of it, then that's what we'll continue to say. These things are being developed for Bitcoin, but they're not there yet. People are actually starting to make prototypes for these integrations into, into banking systems and so on and so forth with Ethereum. And that's happening now. And that's why people are calling it Bitcoin and blockchain technology and all these other things because that's what they're doing right now as opposed to what they might do in the future. Distributed so, ledger technology. Yeah, so when people when, – and that's built into Bitcoin, we can say, oh, they're using Bitcoin, but they're not. So we can't say that. You know, what we can say now whenever – all these crazy hot chicks ask us out in the audience that were <laughs> what we do a show about. We could say we don't do a show about Bitcoin anymore. It's about distributed ledger technology. Sounds so I have much a hard time more explaining efficient. to people who don't know what Bitcoin is what my podcast is about. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good introduction to the Bitcoin, I guess. You know, I slap stickers of our show all over my luggage, and I'm just waiting for the day. When somebody's like, yo, I listened to that. I'm like, ironic. You listened to me. I don't know if that's ironic. but Us. It's not ironic? Uh, no. Don't you Don't you think? <laughs> it's about as ironic as the things that happened in that song. <laughs> Damn, you caught that. You good. Yeah, it's, it's not like a thousand forks and all you need is a knife. Mm. Mm. Is that ironic? Let's uh, let's transition. That was a serious question, though. I feel like I needed an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so audience, listeners, guys, we we switched it up a little bit this week. We threw a change up. 
We usually throw you guys sliders and curveballs, fastballs on the high corner. But this week we did a personal piece uh, with Mackie. You heard it at the top of the show. Uh, Mackie wanted to tell a story and we gave him a platform. And maybe we can start doing this a little bit more frequently. If you guys like it, let us know. Um, It's a little bit different than what we normally do. But it needed to be heard because the Bitcoin community is a wonderful, beautiful community. I was about to say committee. But I didn't. It's a beautiful community. Damn it. Somebody take this away from me. Anyway, uh, he's <laughs> a good friend. Mackie's a good friend of the podcast. And he came up from a background that most people don't think that people in Bitcoin and blockchain and work in Silicon Valley and do a lot of the technological stuff that Mackie does comes from. And we wanted to show that like, this type of technology and a lot of drive and a lot of hustle you can get to where you want to go regardless of where you're coming from. And this is a real life, true story of, of someone doing that. And we kind of wanted to let people uh, understand and see a real case of the story behind someone coming up from, from a bad background and really making it and being, being, success, being successful. So we, we interviewed Mackie and he essentially tells us his story of where he came from and where he is now. Yep. All right, guys. Part one of the Mackie story, uh, the Mackie life plan, if you will. All right. Here it is. We're going to get into something awesome here. Corey, take it away. Yeah. So um, I think it's it's uh, saying it lightly that Mackie grew up in a, a through adversity. And I think it's always interesting to see um, how people come out of ad- adversity and then end up being successful and really using it to their own gain as opposed to being victimized and, and saying the world is against them. And the technologies that are available that allow you to do this type of stuff are, I think, even more present that make it even easier than it used to be. So uh, to start, we've had Mackie on the show quite a bit. And uh, I'd like to, but some of you may or may not have looked into him, what he does, who he is. And so I guess to start, let's, let's have, let's have you just tell us what you do and what your, I guess your skill set is and who you work for and where you live. Give us a picture of what you are now. Mackie. All right. Yeah. Um, I was really glad to hear all that, Corey. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I guess I guess now it'd probably be just like a just a, just a good opportunity to just like kind of go over like what I've been doing now. Yeah, perfect. Okay, great. Um, so now um, I'm living here in San Francisco. I live in the Mission. Uh, I moved out here about a year ago, a year and a half ago, from Virginia. Um, and so when I moved out here, I had a uh, I had a job opportunity as a solutions engineer um, for a company called Signal Labs, um, and I actually had a, an offer for them on the table, and they uh, gave me an opportunity uh, to move out here. And they're like, "Hey, we'll take care of you. We'll um, we'll pay for all your expenses to move out here, and yada yada. Like, you know, we'd really like you to come out here and join our team." And I was like, "Well, that sounds like a great idea." <laughs> 
Um, I've always wanted to, um, I've always wanted to go to California. I guess more on that in a little bit. Um, so I was like, uh, kind of in the midst of just sort of like coming out of school and, and just finishing up um, my uh, bachelor's of science at Old Dominion University. And uh, so I was like kind of looking for like the next steps. And when I graduated, I was like working at Apple. And I was also uh, contracting for like a few other companies. One of those companies was BitReserve, which is now called Uphold. Um, and another one was a company called HashPanel, um, which was started by a friend of mine named Travis Webb, um, who actually he maintains the Trails JS library. Um, and uh, so I was working with like those sort of like two related like Bitcoin companies slash startups. And it was between those two companies that I was introduced to this company, Signal Labs, kind of just like through like the magic of the Internet and LinkedIn and all that other sort of good stuff. And that's when they found out about me and made me the offer to come out here. And, you know, when I came out to San Francisco, I was like, ah, it makes perfect sense to come to San Francisco, right? Because you have Bitcoin stuff everywhere. And I had been doing that for a really long time. Um, having gotten to the Bitcoin space in 2012, you know, I had already been in the space for like almost like three and a half plus years at this point. So it made sense to kind of go to the city where like all the movers and shakers were. Like even if that particular job offer at the time wasn't Bitcoin related. Um, it got me closer to the action, which is essentially what I wanted. I wanted to come out here. I wanted to see all those interesting faces that I kept seeing on Twitter. Um, and I was like, hmm, I bet if I went out to California, I could find that. Uh, so <laughs> I found that <laughs> and I came out here and, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been a pretty cool ride. Uh, you know, I've since then left that company, um, Signal Labs, uh, you know, in, in pursuit of, something that I was like really, really passionate about. Um, basically like the whole, it was a great startup, cool sort of like, you know, up and up and coming like startup feel to it, you know, pay for all your meals, food every single day, um, like, you know, breakfast and lunch. And they paid for like your transportation to and from everywhere. All your healthcare was paid. I was very, I was paid very handsomely. It was, it was a good time, but it, it, it wasn't for me. Um, what? I would, what'd you say? <laughs> you said it wasn't. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't for me. It All wasn't. Right. Um, and, and you know, coming out of uh, coming out of college, you know, with debt because I had to pay for it myself. Like it made sense. Like ah, you know, I should just keep working and hammering away at these bills. But at the end of the day, like I know, I, I knew what I had come here for. And that wasn't it. It wasn't. It wasn't getting up in the morning, and begrudgingly putting on clothes um, and getting on a BART to go walk into an office where it was um, not that this was a particular issue, but you know, a predominantly like sort of like white office um, being like multiracial and just it, it just it wasn't it wasn't really my vibe. Um, and the my people vibe. that like my like my vibe was more so like laid back let's do something cool change the world theirs was mostly like hey let's make this one small feature that'll make this like one particular enterprise company happy happy and maybe they'll sign a big contract like that's cool and all right like it's, it was cool working with like you know really big companies and stuff like that like you know we had some really sweet deals with like airbnb and uh youtube 
And like, even I even got my previous university, Old Dominion University, to come on board with our previous company, and they signed like a year contract with our company through that process. Um, and and so it, it was cool. Like I was able to do it. Like I talk, it was easy to talk to people and to like sort of build out a business case and like build unique implementations and sort of like you know work cross functionally with product and engineering and sales and marketing and like I kind of had my hands in all the pots. And that's when I realized I was like, shit, man, I love doing everything. I was like, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm the world's best programmer. And I wouldn't say that I'm the world's best, like, you know, um, writer. I wouldn't say I'm the world's best UX designer. I wouldn't say I'm the world's best, but I do know, I do know what I love. And I do know that when I love something and I'm passionate about it, I put 10 times the more effort than if something I just like kind of give two shits about. So like when I, when I came in an opportunity to start pursuing like jobs in the Bitcoin space, I sort of just like dug into my network and I was like, okay, um, where can I find, where can I find something fun? Where can I find something happy? Where can I find something satisfied? But most importantly, how can I keep these bills paid? So <laughs> question. that's a really hard that's question hard to question. ask. The city is very expensive city, by the way. And mind you, you know, it took me a couple of months. You know, so I had my expenses saved up. I was fine. You know, I've been in Bitcoin for a while. I've been in the altcoin space for a while. That's sort of like how I, that was sort of my bread and butter, right? I could take care of myself. Um, and in times of like dire stress, it's never been an issue for me to finesse my way out of any situation. That's kind of who I am. It's kind of, kind of hustler at heart, but I'll get to that. Um, so I found my way into purse. Um, through the via Andrew Lee, who was just uh, came at the right nick of time. By the way, big shout out to Andrew Lee, um, nicest guy ever. Um, and so, like at the time, I had been talking with Ryan Charles, um, who's you know working on DAT, which is now yours. And uh, you know we were working collaboratively on this project, but you know things were still progressing slowly. And, you know, I, I had wanted to pursue a, a job uh, at Purse and, you know, sort of I got the got the A-OK to just like kind of just let's go do both. So um, so I came on Purse and, uh, you know, to assist with automating the support processes and assisting with sort of like content management and business development and building out these like use cases for like purses, um, you know, escrow and like e-commerce system and assisting with some, some of the like sort of like the general like product design stuff and, um, you know, other sort of like, I don't know, everything operational and stuff like that. So it, it, it was a great opportunity because, you know, Andrew like gives me the ability to just sort of like flex my muscles as far as like creativity goes and just sort of like find my niche. And, you know, I work with, uh, JJ, Christopher JJ, who's working on Bitcoin, Steven, Steven Bower, who's our front end engineer, Mad Bitcoins, you might have heard of him. I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I work with him like every single day. And, you know, it, um, everyone is just, everyone is just so nice and so dedicated to this big idea of like using Bitcoin to change the world. And every day we have, you know, it's a combination of like, technical discussions on like, man, did Peter Todd from the mailing list, like really say this, like, you know, is, how is this going to affect like scalability and stuff going forward? Or, you know, this is going on in the, uh, the, in the space and this is hot. And like, you know, how do we, how do we ingrain ourselves into this like particular <laughs> industry? Is that how you and, go into meetings? 
Yo, guys, look at this hot shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's actually not that far from that. Uh, you know, so, so we have we had this really big like like so we had like this. When I first came, we had like this three room office, and then so like Andrew and Mad Bitcoins were in one room, and Steven and everyone else they were all in this other big area, and I can't sit still in an office. And I, I, they gave me a desk and they gave me a monitor. I've used it once. Uh, and so, like, I sat, I would sit down and then I would just get up and just sort of, I'm, like, antsy. And I would just sit in all the seats. And, and JJ makes fun of me all the time because, like, I sit awkwardly in different positions all over the office and I never stay in one place. Um, so, like, eventually everyone sort of moved into one part of the office. So now we're all sitting together collaboratively all day, every day. So it's, just, it's literally us just, like, either, like, making fun of, like, whatever is currently going on in the Bitcoin space. Um, and just sort of like powering through the day and like just, uh, just like you know trying to change the world, no big deal. Um, yeah. So hey, let's, let's, let's take a let's take a pause here. So you you yeah. work for two companies that could potentially make a lot of change, and yeah, and you do it in somewhat of an environment that you that you like you really enjoy. It works for you, and it like the like the environment of the company is a lot more laid back, but the projects are very forward thinking and innovative. So you've done what you wanted to do and you're doing something that a lot of people would like to get into, but mm -hmm. like, what's your education? Where'd you come from? Like, how'd you, how did you get there? Whew. Where do you start? Yeah. You... <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, let's, let's just sort of like work my way through like my humble beginnings and I'll, like, I'll, I'll sort of just like trudge along like pretty quickly um, and just, just get, get to the point of like my education and I can slowly touch back on stuff. Uh, if, you know, if, and if you have any interesting questions along the way, please feel free to ask. This is like a lot of stuff um, in my memory is like repressed substantially, um, so it will it will take some uh, digging for it's me. Hard to, bring to go. It it's hard to go deep enough in one hour. So we'll just. Woo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm not gonna go too too too, too deep. So um, yeah, so I was born um, in Augusta, Georgia, in the South, um, October seventh, nineteen ninety. I'm a Libra. Uh, that's a horse in uh, the Chinese calendar. Um, <laughs> all these fun facts. Um, so yeah, I was born in Augusta, Georgia. I was born to a, um, I guess, mixed race couple. Uh, my dad, his name is Steve, um, coincidentally. Um, and my mom, her name is Darlene, um, like the most Southern name you ever heard of. And um, so my dad, he is... Black and Cherokee and Scottish and some other stuff. That's where my last name comes from, which is Mackie. Um, and my mom is Italian and Abenaki and Native American Indian, um, which is a, like a Canadian tribe based out of like um, Algonquin, or that's sort of like sort of like the mother tribe of like everything. Of the group, and then uh, we have a reservation in Odanak, Canada, O D A N A K. Um, and uh, I have not particularly been to the reservation myself. I haven't actually ever left the country. I was but that's about to ask you. I was like, um, check it out. But I have been, I have been to powwows and other sorts of things like that in Connecticut. Um, you know, can always celebrate my heritage because that's like one of my mom, what my mom was really big into. My mom's last name is the most like Native American sounding name ever. It's Masataquis. Um, M apostrophe Sadaquis. It's, <laughs> it's a long name. Um, it, it's great. Uh, you know, it, it, but it was interesting growing up where I was from 
uh, being in the South, uh, particularly growing up in like the 90s. So, so weird. Um, growing up and so kind of just sort of paint a picture. Um, Augusta, Georgia is like where the Masters are held, right? Like the most like uptight event of all time where it's just a bunch of people show up in college shirts and people play golf. Yep. And like, you know, I grew up back in the day when the fact that Tiger Woods went in a bunch of golf games was like a big deal because he had tan skin. So mm-hmm. like, it, you know, I, I lived in a sort of, to paint the picture, I lived in a predominantly white area. School's about 92, 93% white, like 4% black, X percent other. Um, and so it was, it was an interesting time because, you know, being growing up, one of the few like tan skinned individuals, sort of ambiguous looking people growing up in the 90s with a bunch of like young white kids who are like privileged and from money. It was sort of weird for me because, you know, I was the son of uh, a Waffle House waitress and like a construction worker. Um, but my dad, my dad wasn't a con- really a construction worker. That was sort of like his low key like, <laughs> cover up thing. And I don't know how statutes of limitations work completely, but um <laughs> But he did he did some other things which which involve um, green trees, green trees, um, white powdery substances, um, and the dealing of those and such. So and sort of that was his that was his sort of his thing in the area. That was that was his biz. Um, well, he was known in the area. Well, see, my dad is a well, see, my dad is a very very private man. So being in the area that we were, right, and sort of like being like a standout, like they were pretty well known, like couple, right? Like Mackie, like if you ask anyone in North Augusta, South Carolina, Augusta, Georgia, they're kind of like a joint cities from two different states, but they're like literally a bridge across from each other. So everyone knows the Mackie family. Everyone knows how to say the last name correctly. And, you know, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, like when I go back home, because everyone's, oh, yeah, you know, you're like, yo, you're Steve Mackey's son. You're yada, 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 yada. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, y'all know me here. Um, but, but yeah, so, you know, I we grew up there very sort of poor compared to, like, so, so ridiculous. But, yeah, so we lived, we lived in this very cool trailer uh, in the middle of the woods um, in the bottom of this really, really rich white neighbor subdivision. There was a... Uh, there was a lesbian couple by the name of Margaret and Mildred who had lived there for X amount of years. Sorry. And no, it's no, it's fine. And they actually, they actually, I guess, sympathized with my mom and my dad being a mixed race couple and yada yada. And my my parents rented this place from them for my almost a significant portion of my childhood. So I, I grew up with a shit ton of land. Don't get me wrong, acreage for miles, all rented. And all sort of like jointly owned by these this lesbian couple, Margaret and Mildred, who actually lived at the bottom back end of the property in their own trailer. Uh, which is also just a whole different story on its own because they were like hoarders. And so it was really oh, strange. No. And they actually, actually, that's a different story and a different time on its own. But they actually set fire to their house one day because um, they were older women and like every, the whole house was burning down. And my dad, this is, I still remember it to this day. He ran out of the house in just his underwear, and we see this huge trailer just on fire at the bottom of this hill of our house. And my dad runs out in his underwear. He's like, I ain't going to let them old broads die. I remember 
saying that. He said that specifically, and that's not a joke. I Damn. swear to God, I remember it vividly. I'm not gonna let those old broads die. Runs down to the bottom of this hill, busts through the door. He was able to get out Miss Mildred, but the other woman, my dad, by the way, to paint a picture, six foot three, very large. His biceps are like the size of my thighs. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. He was a bodybuilder and stuff growing up. So, like, he's got a really strong mustache. You know, he's that kind of guy. Um, so, like, busts through this door, saves this old woman, Miss Mildred. Doesn't get doesn't get Miss Margaret. She actually passed away. She fa- she fainted from all of the smoke fumes about five feet from the door and passed away and died. My dad was not able to save her. And um, that, that the whole house burnt down. And like one of the things you never forget is like the smell of like burning like human flesh. That is not something that um, that ever leaves your memory. Um, but I guess from that point on, you know, Miss Mildred, she left that property, that everything, and just my dad just sort of attended to everything from then on. I guess that was kind of like the key of the thank you. So he kept running the same place forever, but that's a whole different story. But yeah, so my dad was very, very private because, you know, we lived here at the bottom of this hill behind all these trees in the woods, which was great for me, though, because, you know, I wasn't really allowed to have friends over. Um, I can count the occasions that I had friends over, and it was twice. Um, one time in third grade, uh, this kid, his name was Andrew Fawn. He's still my friend on Facebook. Shout out to Andrew. Um, <laughs> oh, also, I-, I wanted to give a shout out to Brandon Jones, who's currently running for the Belize team in the Olympics. And on Facebook, he told me he would give me a jersey, so I'm going to shout him out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so where was that? Where was that? Where was that? Um, no friends. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Andrew. So Andrew, um, he he visited me in third grade, and I remember it was such a big deal because I was like I was like planning for it and like I cleaned up my room and stuff and like I like I had really really bad OCD, and like I was like oh yeah I finally get to have a friend over to my house and like Andrew came over but I always felt really comfortable because you know we were very very poor, and like his family was like very very well off you know it was like a rich Asian family, right. Uh, they were Vietnamese, so they were like one other like few minorities in the area, so we could relate. So I feel like me and Andrew connected there for that reason. But he came over once, and you know we chilled, we had fun, we played PlayStation, you do the things that kids do. Um, and then the mom came over to pick up the son because my mom had like picked us up from school and like taken us over there, and the mom came to pick up her son, and she didn't, I guess she didn't really approve of the uh, environment because he never came back. Um. But, uh, but that was fine. We lose you? No. But there was another opportunity that came later. Um, and I had another friend visit and that wasn't about, that was about sixth grade. And, uh, he was another guy that lived in the subdivision down the hill in a very, very nice, rich area that was sort of away from where we lived. And I never invited him over. It's just one day he just sort of took it upon himself to just kind of wander by with another friend in the neighborhood to sort of visit. And it was nice because no one ever came over to my house and uh, to hang out. And because uh, I never really felt like I fit in uh, in the area. So I never really made it a point to try and make friends with anyone so it was really tough and uh you know my dad was very private because 
He was a cultivator of fine marijuana. <laughs> and, my, and, I, and I guess he liked to keep that secret. And there was always yeah. people coming, coming in and out of the house and down our long dirt driveway throughout the day to make pickups and stuff for my dad and things like that. And we had a huge, we had a big Rottweiler. His name was Bam Bam. He stayed on a leash outside, a huge running leash. Um, he was he was sort of like there for not only protection, but I had him throughout like my entire like childhood. He was huge. He was like 160, 170 pounds, just like full full grown, like just the best best Rottweiler you could probably imagine, like Cujo style. And like he was uh, he was like my favorite dog, but uh, he lived to like the bright age of like 12 or 13, something like that. But he but that was like basically that like the like sort of the environment I grew in, I grew in. Come home from school. I'm chilling. I was either playing Game Boy or reading books or into my video games because, you know, I didn't really have anyone else to talk to besides my sister. And me and my sister hate each other, but that's a long story. Um, <laughs> and, like, so, like, it was just, like, a constant, like, oh, there's a car coming down the driveway. Dad, there's a car coming. All right, boy. And then, you know, come down, like, you know, and he goes outside on the porch and does his thing, whatever, come back. Like, you know, and, like, you never – you never think twice about what your parents do when you're a kid because you always think that you know, they're just doing parent stuff, right? And so it, it, it wasn't until we got, like, those, like, antenna bunny ear things on the TV to, like, start watching TV and stuff that, and, you know, we only picked up a couple channels that came in clearly, right? Um, and so it was, like, Fox and NBC and, like, your basic stuff. But so a lot, I watched a lot of Fox growing up. It was great. I watched a lot of adult sitcoms like Living Single and Martin <laughs> and Good Times. And, you know, I watched I watched it like that was the only thing that came in on my TV. So I learned a lot. But, I, you know, I started watching Cops and, you know, I would watch that late at night because that'd be the only thing that came on TV in the middle of like bumfuck nowhere where we live. Bad boys, and, bad boys. And so, like, it was like. I was starting getting to an age. I'll probably say I was probably like seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that time frame, where I started realizing some things, and I was like, "Hey, man, some of these things on this TV look that they're arresting these people for looks like things I've seen in my house." And I'm like, "Oh, wait, oh, that's illegal. Oh, that's bad." And then you know, after a couple of years started going by, and I'm like, "Oh shit, I get, I understand everything now." And <laughs> see, during this during this whole time period, like. Uh, it wasn't really a hunky-dory relationship between my mom and my dad. And if they ever hear this radio, I mean, excuse me, this like sort this interview, um, they're not gonna they're not gonna be happy. They're not gonna be happy at all. Um, but uh, like my mom, she was just like just she had terrible, terrible, terrible alcoholism. She struggled with it day in, day out. Um, and it was, I guess she was like, my mom was like bipolar and she was like always like sort of in and out of depression. And um, so it was tough for her. And at the same time, my dad being a drug dealer, he was also a like very promiscuous man. And he enjoyed, he enjoyed having fun and, you know, the drugs and like that fun party lifestyle and strippers and all of that other sort of stuff. So like there was a, like a lot of like infidelity uh, and like those sort of issues, but um, and, and at one point my mom had like split from my dad, and we went to Connecticut for a year. Um, but then we came back, and they like they had made up, and it was a very toxic relationship, the two of them. Um, and like over the years, from like I would say like nine, ten years old on, the alcoholism sort of like got progressively more greater. 
um and to the point where like my parents were like getting like very normal fights of like yelling and screaming and my mom having like a code word for us to like call 911 if like stuff got too bad or if she felt like she was like threatened by my dad because again my dad is a very large man and my mom's like five foot four and a half five foot four five like tiny like skinny lady right so um so it would be a lot of like you know yelling and screaming back and forth and like the houses and like you know physical altercations and things just like opportunities that were constantly fueled by my like my mom's alcoholism and just like my dad's just like you just an asshole so um it was terrible so after years and years of that you know and like abuse from like my dad because he had like a temper so like he would like beat me like you know if he was like upset and he was like you know upset at my mom um you know i would always get the sword in the stick it sucked um but uh i don't know i think the ass whoopings made me a little bit more like calm because otherwise otherwise i think i would have talked and gotten a lot more trouble than i did like that was one of the things that, that i always struggled with in school is like they always tried to give me more things to keep me busy um, because they would give me things like English tests and papers and stuff. And I would start realizing that the teachers were like writing the tests in patterns and I would learn the patterns on all the tests and all. And, and like, I would start doing the tests without actually reading questions and I would be finishing them and I would be getting like hundreds on everything. And they kept trying to give me different works and different things, like sort of keep me occupied and busy. And I always wanted to run my mouth. And because, like, I never got the attention that I wanted at home. So, like, I wanted to make friends. I wanted to talk to people. So, I, the way I expressed myself and, like, tried to learn was, like, in person because I didn't have those social skills at home. So, if I didn't do that at home, I didn't have any other way to learn it, right? So, I always got in trouble for running my mouth. I was always sent to, like, the principal's office. And a lot of this time, I think it's just because there was a lot more bad kids than me. Um, but a lot of the time, I think it was just because I was, you know, mixed race and I was, like, smart and I stood out and... So they made an extra point to like make an example out of me. And so, you know, after like so many years of doing that and like good getting like after school detention because I ran my mouth and always made jokes and like it, they always, they would keep pushing me and like to the next level of the honors classes to the next level of the honors classes. And hey, Steven, you're in sixth grade. Let's, let's start teaching you Latin. Like, let's do like all this other, like, okay, like that's fine. And like this whole time, like I never, did, I never did, I never did homework. Like I remember the very last night, I, my parents stopped like sitting over my shoulders, making sure I did my homework. Must have been like second grade. And ever since then, it was just like sort of like full accountability on my end to come home with a good report card, not to make my parents' life any more difficult than it needed to be, and to just like I was just expected to just do well and just be a good student. And I did that for a really long time. I didn't bring a book home. I never did homework. I never did any of that. If I couldn't do it at work and I couldn't do it in, in class and I couldn't get it done, I didn't do it. Um, but I did exceedingly well. A's and B's, all that stuff. Never made uh, All the way until high school and stuff and around, like I would say beginning of middle school is when I started getting introduced to computers. Um, and when I got introduced to computers, I was fascinated because before I was playing like, you know, my Game Boy and stuff all the time. And I was reading Harry Potter books and Animorph books and every other sort of book you can get your hands on. I could, I would like, I would get like a reading list through class and they were like, we choose one of these eight books to read in this quarter. And I would just read all eight books in the first two weeks and take all the tests. And I would just sit there and do nothing. And like all this, it was just like, uh, it, it was fun to me. And it, when it came time to like, well, I got a computer. I remember like my dad, um, 
using however amount where he got his money from. He had rented us a computer from like, uh, what was it called? Uh, one of those rent center places, kind of like one of those like back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, I remember it distinctly. It was one of those all in one sort of like gateway computers where it looked like this old school CRT monitor, but it was just sort of like all in one functionality. It was nice. And so like, <laughs> and at the time thinking back to it in the year, he was paying a lot of fucking money for that computer. Um, <laughs> and, but so that was my first experience is I got on the internet and I started going to places like cartoonnetwork.com and Nickelodeon and like, oh yeah, like the fledgling websites, right? That were just sort of like yeah. coming out and they had flash games. And was, oh, it was, oh, this was great. And then like we, and then the computer like went away. It got like possessed back. Like I played with it for maybe like a year or something like that. I don't know. Maybe my dad stopped making payments, some some bad stuff. I don't know. We were poor. So, you know, make, insert exit, choose Y here. Who cares? It went away. I didn't have it. So I was sad. Uh, and then come around like fifth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Yeah, actually, no, I should. I think I got the computer sooner than that. Yeah, I was in third. Yeah, I was in third or fourth grade. Excuse me. Because in fifth grade, uh, I met my aunt Sharon for the first time. And my aunt Sharon, she lived in Virginia. Um, which is kind of the lead up as to how I ended up in Virginia. But she came down to visit and she brought us a computer because my mom told her that I was so into computers and I don't know, like they, she, at this time, she must've spent at least $3,000 on this Dell computer, $2,000 or whatever. Just like Mm -hmm. my my aunt was like an IT contractor. And so she went out of her way and she got me and my sister a really awesome gift. And she got us like, and at the time thinking back to it, like I didn't realize how good of a gift it was. Um, but the, the computer, the computer was basically like this Dell dimension, something, something, the other all in one at the time. And at the time it had like 128 gigs of like discrete memory and like 512 megabytes of RAM. And I was, it was a shit back in the day. And like, man, it was great. I did everything on a computer. I broke that computer so much, like going into folders. I didn't know I was supposed to be in. I didn't know shit about what no. was really going on. Man, like, learn. oh, it was that's how you learn, right? Like, I was going into system 32 files and deleting shit I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> um, and like, I was like, yo, if I clear up this folder, the computer will run faster, right? Like, dumbass kid shit. Oh, um, uh, yeah, I know about yeah. that. <laughs> they did that like three weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, things you do when you're like in like, you know, fifth, fifth sixth grade. And oh, yeah. so, like, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Fifth is great. And so, <laughs> it was fun. And, you know, but we weren't able to get on the internet, right? So what I had to do, what I learned to do was in order to access the internet is if I went around the neighborhood and stole all the America Online discs from people, <laughs> I could get I could get 30-day trials over and over again because I realized that these unique keys uh, were my access to my addiction, which was the outside world, which I didn't have access to. So I got really, really good at faking billing information and other sort of personal identifiable information on the internet and stuff to like re-roll a different account every 30 days so me and my sister could get on the internet. Um, and sort of like, sort of like, just like finessing that. And my parents would be like, how are you doing this? Like, we're not paying for anything. We didn't pay for internet for like, we, we used dial-up, Albay, but for like two or three years, it was just all me. Just re-rolling new accounts on America Online all the time. Oh man, it was crazy. Um, but you know, it gave me, it gave me access to the internet and it gave me access to web forums and chat rooms and to online communities and like, you know, everything from, I used to play on this website. It was called beyond.com, B-Y-O-N-D. It still exists. It was basically like a third party game platform where you created your own games and then it had its own in-game currency. It was called pennies. 
and you could basically trade pennies like back and forth to other people for their other in-game items. And this was sort of like my first introduction to digital currency. I'm just realizing this as I'm telling you guys the story. Um, and uh, yeah, so like I was introduced to this and I realized that I could um, game people on this website and send them other people's um, digital items that I would collect in order to make these digital this digital money. So I just started collecting all these things that were called pennies. And uh, spending them on all these different games and creating all these cool objects and like making friends and like socializing and like at one point I remember like I learned sorry it got really fucking good at typing really fast and I remember my dad just sort of like uh, just confused like boy he was like stop hitting that keyboard so fast on the other side of the room trying to watch the game <laughs> and like you know because he because he'd be like watching like NFL because that was my, my dad my dad my dad was weird like he's like six foot three like black guy right but he watched NFL but he loved NASCAR. And like it was really, <laughs> and so like you know he was like, hey boy, like hush that noise over there. But like I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I'm just you know I'm just trying to type on the computer. And he was like, you ain't typing that fast, boy. You need to go over there and stop making all that noise. And I'm like, okay, Daddy. And you know, so, <laughs> I gotta, like, so type. he didn't believe you could type that. He fast didn't believe it. He didn't know. He, he didn't know. He didn't have until this day. My dad doesn't know how to use a computer. Um, and he just was just he can use a smartphone though, so good for him. But uh, he he just he he didn't understand he didn't understand what like what world I was living in right so like just like just Neopets y'all remember Neopets that was dope <laughs> oh, yeah. yes I do actually. oh man oh I used to I used to go on Neopets on these online communities and like I would be on the forums and I loved just meeting and talking to people on these forums and just like getting people's perspectives and like learning like ways to like cheat the game and like ways to like use like bots and stuff online to play these games for me to make money and i got into a point of like socially engineering and i started like um uh taking over people's accounts on neopets and draining all of their items and stuff and i didn't i didn't think i didn't realize what i was doing um at the time like this was like this was like the early days of the internet like at the time right as a kid these were just these were disembodied text-based voices on the other side of computer right like it wasn't as you know ubiquitous as it is now these didn't feel like these didn't feel like people they felt like characters i was interacting with in the game and i was just gaming them a little bit better Hmm. and so you know i started doing that and it it, that evolved even more so it got to a point where in high school me and my friend daniel doan he started uh microsoft started this thing it was called live search um and this was like the eventually thing that turned into bing and in order for them to like increase their search results things, they had this thing called like the live search game where they incorporated like these online games that kids could play that were very addictive. And they basically embedded search results so they can boost up their amount of search results in comparison to Google. It was very interesting. Hmm. So I started playing these games because they had these points that you could collect and you could like get like Xbox 360, I mean like Xbox games and like control and you could get like mics and like all these other like toys. And I was like, kind of like when you would like, you know, sell those candy bars at school and you would get prizes from a book. It was kind of like that. And so I was like, this is cool. And I was like, well, I'm earning only a couple hundred points at a time. Like I'm running on dial up here. Like I'm poor. Like, what do I do? So like my friend Daniel introduced me to these scripts and he was like, hey man, like if you run this little thing on your computer, it'll play all our games for us. And you can just max out your account and order all the prizes you want. <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, you can do this. And he was like, yeah, man, that's totally cool. And I was like, all right. So I started running all these scripts and I would like max out an account at like 10,000 points, 10,000 points. And I would order like five or six Xbox games and like an Xbox and like 
headphones and all this stuff. And I never expected anything from it. Like, it was a game for me, right? It was just numbers on the screen. Like, I was just playing around with it. And and, and I didn't actually expect anything from it. And about, like, three months later, um, all these boxes and stuff started showing up at the house. And my mom was like... <laughs> My mom was like, what is all this shit? And I was like, mom, I don't know. And, like, we opened the boxes, and it was just, like, controllers and video games and just everything, like, all this stuff that I had, like, ordered, and I never expected anything of it. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, and so... I do things. It is I can real. do things. If I do things on the internet, there's real consequences in real life. And, <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy. And so I saw... So I got into the habit of, like, sort of, like, hustling. Again, I was poor, so I was like, if I resell all these things on the internet i can get money and i can like buy me things like i can get me clothes so like kids at school stop picking on me and like that's sort of a different story but once i had moved to virginia with my mom actually the um, the woman who got us the computer my aunt sharon after up until about eighth grade fast forward like three or four years my mom's alcoholism and stuff had gotten so bad my mom wanted to escape and my mom, I came home from school one evening at like five o'clock and my mom like threw me this these two big black trash bags into my lap and she said, pack up everything that's important to you and don't and bring nothing with you that isn't. Put it in the back of the Mazda. Um, and we're gonna leave tonight. And that was part one of Stephen Mackey's story, the Mackey Life Plan. Uh and uh yeah, it's very interesting, very um personal and very eye opening about someone who you may or may not have seen tweeting uh, everyone from the Winklevi to Kim.com to Andreas. I have tweeted every single person on Twitter. Yes. Everyone. Did you do it with a bot or did you go through manually? Twitter game is strong. Okay. This Twitter game is strong. <laughs> when I first got Twitter, I started tweeting like, I tweeted Steven Spielberg and Christopher Nolan movie ideas. Um, yeah, I was I was stupid. I tweeted The Rock, asking for a workout plan. Um, anyways, wow. Don't this thing's to, been long. Let's wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, thank you guys for listening. Another week of awesomeness. Um, episode seventy nine. Wow. Anyways, thebitcoinpodcast.com. That's our website. If you go there, uh, you can do stuff. And there's a newsletter there. You should sign up for it. Yeah. Yep. At the BTC podcast on our Twitter. Uh, Marcello runs the Twitter at Mojincello. And that's our Twitter. And we also have, what else do we have? What else do we do? all kinds of things we do all kinds of stuff we're all over the place we're on stitcher itunes yeah the coin telegraph of course our partners in in crime or our partners in good citizenship nobody ever says that our partners in good samaritanism i've heard that before you have no thank you Uh oh (laughs) damn made me feel good about myself Anyways, the Coin Telegraph is a partnership. You can go there and read all kinds of Bitcoin news, and, and some some articles are kind of funny. Some of them are kind of speculative. It's a very good place to get Bitcoin news and Bitcoin what and the what's. 
because Reddit sucks ass now, thanks to Thamos. So hashtag Thamos is bitch made. But nevertheless, uh, damn it. We'll um, see you uh, in midweek. Yeah, we got a midweek coming out this Part week for you Mackie. guys. Max yep. Cordek from Lisk. Maximum Mackie. Yep. Anybody got anything they want to say? Wrap it up. All right. Shout out to Zoe Saldana. We'll be seeing you soon. And uh, play the Do 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 do